Would you turn to Mark 15? Mark 15, and we're reading today from verse 42 to 46. 42 to 46 in Mark 15. We're going bit by bit um, through the gospel of Mark. And after so many years, um, we're coming very, very close to the end of the gospel of Mark. Praise the Lord. All right. <clears throat> we start reading from verse 42. <clears throat> when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. <clears throat> we all know that the preaching, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an integral part of the gospel. Because without believing that Jesus rose from the dead, no one can be saved. But how do you ensure that the resurrection is wrong in the mind of unbelievers without the death of Jesus out of which Christ resurrected is believed. And how do we ensure that the literal death of Christ is embraced in the mind of the hearers without any shadow of a doubt, without proclaiming the burial of Christ that looks back and proves his death and looks forward to affirm his resurrection? <clears throat> so the burial of Christ is the link between his actual death and his glorious resurrection. It seals his death. It confirms his resurrection. And Jesus' burial was so significant that Paul the apostle included it to be part of the essence of the gospel that was proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 4. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. <clears throat> One, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. And three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In fact, the burial of Christ was specifically mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. That is the first and the oldest creed, Christian creed, um, which is the foundation of most of all other creeds. And it says that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. And the third day he rose from the dead. And while there was no supernatural activities occurred at that time when Jesus was buried, no miracles were involved. But this event was a major event in the redemptive history, orchestrated by our sovereign God. And it points to the irrefutable and most crucial event in all human history, namely the resurrection. Furthermore, in addition to that, many prophecies were fulfilled in the burial of Christ. 
which means not only does it point to the resurrection, but it also points to the unsearchable greatness of our God who doesn't need to suspend the natural laws and perform miracles so that to fulfill his words, no. But in his providence, as he turns the wheel of history and moves with such ease through circumstances of life and through the affairs of this world, he still fulfills his word. How does he do that? By ordaining men to interact in the, in the natural realm, acting upon their own desires, their own plans and thoughts, and yet at the same time, all that they do would be precisely according to God's sovereign will. And thus, God's purpose would be accomplished. And such was the case in Jesus' burial. The first point that we want to look at this morning is the providence of God through his foes, through his enemies. We want to see here how incomprehensibly great, how inconceivably mighty is our God in the burial of his son, Jesus. Now, because of how significant this event was that the, in, a, in a redemptive history, God inspired the four gospel writers to record this event. And as we know, um, and like many other events that were recorded in the four gospels, each writer wrote um, that narrative from his view to attest to that event from his own angle. And so to get a clearer picture of the holistic story of what happened at that time when Jesus was buried, would you turn to John 19? John 19 and this passage will be the first point of this message. <clears throat> and we're starting from verse 31. So far up to this point, we know it's, it was April, Friday, full moon, Passover feast. It was 3 p.m. when Jesus committed, yielded up his life to the Father. We've seen this last week. He's now dead. Three hours later, after darkness hovered and fell upon the earth, now God decided to switch back the light into his world. Everything now back to normal. 3 p.m. John 19, 31 says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation. Now, what is the day of preparation? Well, it was Friday just after 3 p.m. So Friday was, was the day of preparation. Three hours later, it will be the Sabbath. The Sabbath will begin, and um, remember how um, we said that in Jerusalem, the day begins at sundown, at 6 p.m., from sundown to sundown, and God commanded his people long ago to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, meaning that they are to rest from their daily activities and to dedicate this day, one day, the whole day, not the morning, but the whole day to worship Yahweh, their God. So the Jews did so much preparation on Friday to keep the Sabbath holy. And that's why Friday was called the preparation day. Continuing on in the Gospel of John 19, <clears throat> it says, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Romans had absolutely no respect for the bodies of the criminals that were hung. 
Normally, it was their custom to leave their victims hung on a cross for um, many days, even after they died. Why? So that either um, their bodies would be eaten by scavenger animals or birds, or even they just let the bodies left to decompose while they were hanging. And this would serve as a visual strong deterrent to any potential criminal who would ever be tempted to think, hmm, maybe I should rise up and rebel against Rome. All they needed to do is to look upon those cross crosses and see the rotten bodies, and then they would think again not to rebel against Rome. But this custom never sat right with the Jews. Why? For a simple reason, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, meaning crucify, his corpse shall not hang all night on that tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Why? For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as inheritance. So the law law of Moses says that the one who is hung on a tree is accursed of God. And that's why he's hung on a tree. So his body that is defiled wouldn't touch the ground, otherwise... The ground would be a curse just like his body is, and that's not good for you. So what do you do? You get rid of his corpse ASAP, as soon as possible. On the same day. And to add to this command, the next day was a holy Sabbath day. Plus, it was the beginning of the unleavened bread feast, which means They've got another week, seven days of holy rest. So what did the Jews do? They sent a delegation to Pilate, who by that time has become their puppet. And they requested of him to hurry up. Come on, get going. What do you do? Break their legs, get rid of them before the Sabbath begins. Well, needless to say that those Jewish people were so hypocrites because in one hand, they unfairly condemned the Son of God to death without any contritions or remorse. And yet, at the same time, on the other hand, they're so particular to keep the Sabbath holy. And how did they want to keep it holy? By making sure that the body of Christ, who happens to be the Lord of the Sabbath, to be done away with so that his body, whose body, the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, would not defile the Sabbath. How foolish. They were what we call spiritually retarded people. Well, earlier... They threatened Pilate that if he didn't do what, what he wanted, them, wanted him to do, um, that they would tell of him to Caesar and get him in trouble with his boss. And he didn't like that. He was scared of that. And so Pilate would not dare to offend him. So he gave the orders to finish off these criminals. How? By breaking their legs. What does that mean? Such a painful thing. At that time, what it meant to break the legs, um, a Roman soldiers, they would pick a large iron mallet, big gigantic kind of hammer thing, and shatter the legs of the victims. Of course, this would send the crucified into this sudden shock. It would have been excruciating agony. But because the legs are broken, that criminal would not be able to raise himself up to breathe. So it would only be a matter of minutes before he would suffocate to death. In verse 32, 
says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. So the soldiers came and they checked. First cross, mm, he's breathing. The shadow of his legs. Skip the second one. And they moved to the third cross. Oh, he's also breathing. Let's break his legs. Well, what about with Jesus? Verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead of breaking his legs, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, <clears throat> medical articles dispute and they have different opinions as how this blood came out. Where did the blood come from? But one thing, all medical articles agree upon that this proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead. Some claim that the apostles were lying when they said that, um, that Jesus died. So oh, Jesus didn't really die. The apostles were lying. But notice here that the first confirmation of his death were not the apostles. The apostles were nowhere to be found. It was his enemies, the Roman soldiers, who also happened to be professional executioners. They knew what a dead man looked like when they looked at him. And what's amazing here <clears throat> is without the soldiers realizing. And while the Jewish leaders were, were oblivious and with whatever evil intentions they had, once again, they were used by our sovereign God to fulfill his will exactly as he planned it. Because by this deed alone, there were prophecies that were fulfilled. Have a look at verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. That's the first prophecy. The second in verse 37, the very next verse, it says, And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Third, because not only that, but please know Jesus died three hours before Sabbath, the last three hours on Friday so that he would be in the tomb for three separate days before his resurrection as he exactly prophesied. Brothers, we've got to be amazed. We've got to be awestruck with the sovereignty of God. Please note, how were these prophecies fulfilled? Again, were, were these soldiers double agents? You know what I mean? You know, like, were they pretending to be bad soldiers, but in reality they were good little Christians when they were younger and they studied these prophecies at Sunday school somewhere? And then somehow they thought, well, it's time for us to fulfill these prophecies. Quickly, get a spear. Bang. No. It was God in His providence who was working through these soldiers. You know what all the religious leaders could have done so that they would defy the sovereignty of God? They could have done nothing. If they did nothing, stayed at home, go ready for the, for the Sabbath, and let Jesus' body decompose on the cross, they would have defied God's sovereignty. And that scripture would not have been fulfilled. But yet, yeah. There was nothing supernatural about this event, which means wicked men were still wicked. The apostles were still terrified. Pilate was still a puppet, and those religious leaders remained hypocrites, and yet, and without needing to perform any miracles, with such ease, God worked through the natural course of life, and in His providence, 
all that he purposed was getting fulfilled down to the last letter. While men were acting upon their own impulses, fulfilling their own desires, somehow, in God's providence, they were constantly under the governing hands of our amazing God. And he was using them to declare to the world that Jesus truly died. Redemption indeed was accomplished. And if God was able to turn the most wicked men known to the world into a means for his glory to shine and for our good, We must pause and reflect on this and think, what evil circumstance would, would you ever go through that God in his providence wouldn't be able to turn for good? We must rest in his providence, brothers. We must take joy in his sovereignty, sisters. The captain of your salvation the lover of your soul has the whole world in his mighty hands. Well, not only is God able to work through his foes, he's also able to work through his followers. That brings us to the second point, God's providence through his followers. Now we turn to Mark. Mark 15. And we start reading verse 42. Now as we have seen what was going on behind the scene with Pilate and the Jews and all, we come to verse 42 and it says, When evening had already come, again, this is the three-hour window between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And it says, Because it was the preparation day, which is... It tells you here that is the day before the Sabbath, which is, again, Friday evening. And now the narrative takes a turn. And it places the spotlight on verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea. Who's Joseph of Arimathea? Not much known about Joseph other than what is written in this event. In, in all the Gospels, in all the four Gospels. So what do we know about him? Well, to start, he's of Arimathea. Arimathea was a, a city uh, in Judea. Um, it's called the city of the Jews. Call, call, Luke calls it the city of the Jews. Matthew tells us he was a rich man, a wealthy man. And Mark here tells us that he's a prominent member of the council. So he was one of the members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin has 71 um, uh, members in that um, Supreme Court who were in charge of the Jews. And he wasn't just a member. It tells you yeah, a prominent one. That's a very special title, meaning he's the go-to man. Out of the entire council, he was the one that was of the most respected, the most honored, a member of high standing, and his words carried weight. Now, please note who the Sanhedrin were, these people in this council. These were the, the members that falsely accused our Lord. And illegally tried him. We've gone through this for about two or three sermons. And they wrongly condemned him to death. It was this Sanhedrin that stirred up the crowd and they spearheaded the um, physical and the verbal abuse of our Lord. They were corrupt leaders. But Luke 23 says of Joseph that he was a good and righteous man. That he had not consented to their plan and action. 
Joseph was a man of conviction. He never succumbed to the pressure of the crowd. No, he wasn't a pushover. How come? Mark continues and he tells us who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. None of the others were waiting for the kingdom of God. They were pretenders. But Joseph here, he was genuine. He was eager for the kingdom of God to be established. When all the others were eager and waiting for the kingdom of man to expand, more praises of man, more money in their pockets, greater earthly pleasures and comfort, but not so with Joseph. His heart was seeking the kingdom of God above all. He was hungry and thirsty for the kingdom. And when Jesus stepped into the scene, as we read, and if you read in Mark chapter 1, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea became a disciple of Jesus, a follower, a believer of Jesus. We don't know when in the span of three years of Jesus' ministry, but he came to saving faith. Now, John is more specific, and he says in John 19, 38, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. He was a secret disciple, undercover. No one is perfect. Certainly, that applies to Joseph. He was afraid, a secret disciple. Why was he afraid? John 9.22, Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So Joseph was a follower of Jesus, but a weak one. You see, the more you have, the more you could lose if you follow after Jesus Christ. And Joseph had much to lose. So though he believed, but his devotion to Christ was entangled by much of the affairs of this world. He seems to be glued either to his status, you know, his prominent position or his riches. He was afraid to lose his stuff. So what happened? His witness for Christ was compromised. His mouth was shut and his usefulness was choked. So yes, he was a believer, but he clung to his fear and all he accumulated in terms of heavenly rewards was no more than wood, hay or straw. We must never be like this Joseph of Arimathea in this. Rather, brothers, we must always remind ourselves that our well-being is not rooted in how much rich richness we have or how prominent we are or intelligence or respect we have. No, not even the absence of these things. It's rooted in how much the entirety of all we are and what we have that we place at Christ's disposal. Our well-being, our usefulness is found in capitalizing and offering all our earthly blessings that God granted us to Him. That we come to God and we say to Him, God, use us. Work through us, Father. How can we have our blessings and place them at Jesus' disposal? How do we magnify him with whatever possessions we have? How do we glorify his name? If you're waiting for the kingdom, then your occupation must be given to the expansion of this kingdom. And brothers, count every loss you encounter in that way, in that path, as gain when you commit to this task. But you know what? I thank God for Joseph of Arimathea. 
Because once he was exposed to the cross, God radically transformed his life. And that's the effect of the cross in believer's life. The more we meditate on the cross, the more God transforms our lives. Look what it says. It says, and he gathered up courage. Wow. God in his sovereign grace began to work in this man's life and he began to show change. Joseph pulled himself up by the power of God. He shook off the dust of his useless life. And it says, gathered up courage. Literally, it means to dare or to show boldness. And we don't know how it happened, what God actually used to trigger off this change. It could have been that Joseph at that time thought in himself, how can my Messiah die for me such a horrifying death and yet I don't live for him? Perhaps he was there when Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and he thought of the cross when he looked upon Christ hanging on a tree and he remembered the words of Jesus when he said in Mark 8.34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Did his conscience prick him, reflecting on the words of Jesus when Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We don't know. But what we know is this, and what it says in the Gospel of Mark, Joseph gathered up courage, went in before Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, normally the bodies of the crucified criminals that would be thrown into a common grave, cast in, um, if you recall, we had an hour study on Gehenna, um, and they would be thrown along with the animal carcasses or, um, you know, manure, and no doubt this would have been a place where the other two robbers were thrown in. But Joseph thought to himself, I've got a prominent position, meaning I have access to Pilate. I can go and speak to Pilate. And I have riches. I know what I'll do. I'll use all that is in my possessions to honor Christ and to dignify his burial. Give him a, a good, dignified, royal burial. And so he came out of the closet. Risking everything to obtain Jesus' body for his burial. Brothers, think of the losses that this man was willing to risk in order to be identified with Christ. I thought of three. One, he would have risked his own life. Pilate at this time was so angry with the religious leaders. And for Joseph to, rest, to request the body of Jesus, it could have backfired at him. Pilate could have used this against Joseph and charged him of treason because he wanted to honor a rebel of Rome. And he could have singled out Joseph. He had no supporters. The rest of the Sanhedrin would have left him at that time. And he would have been an easy target for Pilate to, to kill this Sanhedrin member. Second, he could have lost his position, his status as, as a prominent member of the council because the rest of the Jews could have turned on him and excommunicated him not just from the council but even from the temple. He could have lost his riches. All his possessions could have been confiscated after being expelled from the Sanhedrin. If the Sanhedrin were corrupt enough to illegally try Jesus, why would they not be that corrupt to take all 
um, Joseph's possessions. But Joseph traded his riches for righteousness. His fame for faithfulness. He could no longer remain to be a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. No. The love of God was way too much on that cross. And it filled his heart. And now his chest was burning with with so much love for Christ. And out of this love, now he comes out in the open and he speaks publicly of his devotion to Jesus, no matter the consequences he may suffer. I would to God that we would desire God to work in our hearts and to change us like he changed Joseph of Arimathea. Brothers, he changed this fearful man into a man with a spine, boldness. And if he's able to change this man, he's able to change us. God, in his providence, works through his followers. Number three, God's providence worked through the funeral of his son. So back now to the narrative, verse 44. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, death by crucifixion was generally a very slow death. That's why it takes a lot. Um, um, that's what we say that it's um, a torturous death. It takes three days for one to die. So Pilate could hardly believe that Jesus already died. Now, how do you reconcile and bring into harmony the gospel of John and the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John? It was Pilate that gave the orders to break the legs of the criminals, meaning he intentionally wanted Jesus to die. And yet here he's surprised that Jesus is dead. How is it that he's surprised? Well, very simple. Most likely Joseph asked for Jesus' body straight after the the other Jews requested for their death. Long before the order was actioned by the soldiers. So the Sanhedrin went in, so also um, Joseph of Arimathea, and as Pilate gave the order, long before it was actioned, Joseph told him, well, now that Jesus is dead, can I have his body? And so Pilate was shocked. Did Jesus actually die? Only six hours after crucifixion? This was unheard of. So he wanted to be assured. How? He sent for the Roman military's officer, the centurion, the go-to man, whether Jesus was dead. And again, this centurion is so trained in execution, he would never make such a basic error. And so when the centurion gave him thumbs up, yep, Jesus is dead, Pilate granted the body to Joseph. You can just imagine by that time, Pilate wanted this day to end. Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth and took him down. Jesus was hung on a cross. Still crown of thorns on his head. Nails in his hands and feet. For Mark to say that Joseph took Jesus down. I wonder, was it, was it Joseph that removed the crown of thorns? Was he the one that removed the nails from his hands and feet? We don't know. But once Joseph took Jesus down, it says he wrapped him in a linen cloth. Now, what's this linen cloth? Linen cloth was actually um, linen bandages or 
cloth strips, if you like. And normally they were packaged with um, so much and strong kind of fragrant spices to counteract the odor that was caused by the decay of the bodies that were dead. Now check this out. In John 19 verse 39, it tells us that it was actually Nicodemus. Remember in in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus in chapter 3, who came to Jesus by night, asked him, um, you know, spoke to him, and Jesus said to him, you've got to be born again. Well, he's another member of the Sanhedrin, and he came to believe in Jesus. And John tells us that Nicodemus was the one that brought about 100 pounds of spices. Now, this is huge amount, huge now, I did a bit of homework, got my calculator out to work out what this 100 pounds is, and you can do that at home if you like. And what I did was I took the, the narrative, remember when Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, when she, when she poured one pound of fragrance on Jesus and, and it was worth 300 denarii, remember that? And uh, we kind of worked it out and it was uh, one year's wage. Well, if one year's wage, let's just be conservative and say it's $60,000 worth, one year's wage, one pound, one year's wage, one pound, $60,000. The Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds, which means if you plug in the numbers, it would equate to $6 million worth of fragrance and spices. It's a statement that Nicodemus was making. It shows how Nicodemus also came out in the open, confessing his love and allegiance to Christ to the uttermost. He's laying down his finance at Jesus' feet. Christ, you are worthy of all that I have. We'll continue on. It says, well, once Jesus' body was prepared for burial, it says, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in a rock. Again, let's, a couple of observations here regarding the providence of God so that we can finish the, the message again, praising God for his providence, his amazing work, even in a natural realm, without any miracles performed. First, <clears throat> it was a new term. John 19, 41 tells us it was a, in a nearby garden in which no one had yet been laid. In ancient Israel, um, just like in many places in the world, uh, they would place um, the dead body in, um, in a tomb, inside a tomb. And they leave the body there to fully decompose. And once the body fully decomposed, they take whatever is left of the bones and then they put it in a, in a box somewhere. And that way they would make that tomb available to be used again and again and again for other dead bodies. But with Jesus, he's, he was buried in a new tomb. New in a sense that it had never been used, no decay, no decomposed corruption had ever entered it. Exactly as the word of God prophesied 1,000 years earlier when David said in Psalm 1610, for you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. There's no corruption at all in this tomb. Nothing. No corruption. Second observation, in Matthew 27, 60, it was Joseph's own tomb. 
it was Joseph that wanted to bury Christ, and he buried Christ in Joseph's tomb. And we know that Joseph was a rich man, right? Hence, again, there is another fulfillment yet of another prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 9. It says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, meaning they intentionally wanted to throw him in Gehenna or somewhere. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. God in his sovereignty already prepared the burial of Jesus even long before Jesus came into our earth. Be it through using his enemies as his instruments or working his grace through um, his followers, giving them courage when needed the most. Ultimately, it is God's will that was to be fulfilled. And those who belong to God ought to rejoice in that. Then it says, he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Of course he had to. There was millions of dollars worth of spices. He could buy the entire garden with it. But more importantly, it was the body of Jesus that was there. And Joseph did not want a, a robber to come in and, and to steal the body of Jesus. So he placed a massive stone to cover the opening of the tomb. And then Mark finishes this narrative, but we'll pick this verse up for next week. For next time I preach, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. What do we conclude in this? How do we conclude it? Well, I thought of one, one thing. There are multiple things that we can reflect on when we um, fellowship together later on. But one thing that just struck me was how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used their riches to the glory of God. Now, Jesus, in many occasions, pointed out the danger of earthly riches, and more particularly, the love of it. In Mark 10, verse 23, Jesus said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, if you study the Gospels carefully, you will find that Jesus warned us about the danger of the love of money more than any other sin. Now, it doesn't mean that there is somehow glory in poverty. That's not true. Hell is full of poor people. The world is full of poor people that are cursing God because of their poverty. It is not our poverty that somehow pleases God, nor is it our riches. Another thing, it does not mean that in the kingdom of God that there, there is no room for rich people. No, Abraham was rich. Nicodemus was rich. Barnabas was rich. The mother of John Mark was rich. Lydia must have been rich. Not this Lydia. <laughs> and so was Joseph of Arimathea. By God's grace, these men and women were changed. And he became useful, willingly eager to contribute generously to the cause of God and his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it is not about how much or how little riches we have that pleases God. What pleases God is how much I place at Christ's disposal. And would to God 
that in his providence, that the cross of Jesus would pierce our hearts like it did to Joseph of Arimathea and work mightily in his little flock so that with whatever riches or poverty we have, that we give God all the glory. Well, this was the story of the burial of Christ. And next, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. And what a glorious, glorious event it is. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for Joseph of Arimathea or how we identify with his weaknesses, with his flaws, or how we can see us in Joseph of Arimathea. As he is, he was afraid. And yet at the same time, how we delight and rejoice in you, God, who's able to put courage in this man's life, transformed him and made him a useful vessel for your glory. Or how we all would love to see ourselves, Lord God, filling in the shoes of Joseph, opening our hearts, letting you, Lord God, transform our lives so that with all of our desires we throw at the feet of the cross all of our cares of this world and coming out of that cross that we will be so determined as Joseph was, as Nicodemus was, as Mary was to say, God, use us, use everything that we have, everything, every last penny in our pockets to your glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.